community for people who've given up on church but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, good morning, everyone. How's that for a greeting? Uh, so glad you're here. My name is Aaron. I'm the teaching pastor uh, here at Lake Forest at our Westlake Church. We are in week three of a series on the book of Jonah. And uh, if you are just joining us, let me just say you picked a great Sunday to jump in uh, because today's chapter is probably one of the most often told, one of the most often debated stories in all of the Bible. Uh, let me catch up to speed on where our main character, Jonah, is at. The story begins when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Jonah's a prophet. Uh, prophets are guys who uh, point out the sins of people. They warn of the coming uh, uh, consequences, and they give hope when we are facing those consequences. He's a, he's a prophet. That's his job. And the word of the Lord comes to him. But Jonah uh, doesn't want to do what the word what the Lord is telling him. The Lord says, go to the city of Nineveh and tell the people about my love and my mercy. Jonah doesn't want to do that. So he gets on a ship going to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Now, God is not willing to give up. So God sends a storm and the ship is going down. Uh, the sailors say, what should we do to get the storm to stop, Jonah? And he says, throw me overboard. Well, once the pagan sailors do just that, they are converted and they start worshiping the God of Israel. We talked about that last week. Jonah goes over the side of the boat and the storm stops. Lost at sea, Jonah thinks he's going to die. And this is where our story picks up today. And I want you to pretend, just, just play with me here. I want you to pretend that you've never heard this story before. Like you're hearing it for the very first time. Because at this point, Jonah is sinking down into the sea and the Bible says the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah stays inside that fish for three days and three nights. And I don't know about you, but this just strikes me as kind of funny. It's kind of strange. This is an unexpected, unusual detail, and it's supposed to be. Now, the word here for the word provided, the Lord provided a fish, is very interesting. You can kind of think of it, they didn't have Uber in the day, but they might have had an app called Blubber. <laughs> the word provided here could be translated appointed or commissioned. Uh, it was a governing word in the ancient world, something a king would do when sending someone on a very special mission. Now, in this case, it's not a person that is being sent, but a fish. It is a fish that is commissioned. And you can kind of imagine how this conversation might have gone. God turns to the large fish and says, hey, fish. And the fish says, yes, Lord, uh, I need you to do me a favor. And the fish says, okay. Uh, the Lord says, I need you to go and pick up Jonah. Uh, where do you want me to take him? And the Lord says, I want you to deliver him to Nineveh. And then sort of this last little detail that the Lord says, and please just remember, swallow, don't chew. <laughs> it's just an odd story. Do you sense that? This is very, very unusual. Now, I want to pause at this moment and talk about something very serious because the nature of this story is such that thoughtful people, thoughtful people like many of you, will often say, you know, Aaron, 
I, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say this in church or not, but this whole idea of a guy living inside a fish belly for three days, I just want to be honest, that's a little hard for me to believe. And if that's you or you've ever had questions about this story, I want to tell you how glad I am that you are here because we want to be the kind of church where we can say what we're really thinking, that we don't have to pretend to believe something we have questions about. But we also want to be the kind of church, the kind of community that reads and studies the scriptures in a thoughtful way. Some people have tried to deal with this problem of the fish belly by trying to prove that such a fish actually exists in the world or that it's possible in some physical way to survive because, I don't know, the fish has really bad gas and there's a lot of oxygen in there or something. But this is to miss the point entirely. The point is not that it is physically possible for a human being to live inside the belly of a fish. The point is that it would take a miracle to do so. So the real question is, do we believe miracles are possible? Are miracles possible? See, at the core of our faith is the claim that God, the Almighty God, sent His Son Jesus to walk amongst us in human flesh, He was crucified, killed, buried, left for dead. And then God raised him from the dead on the third day. And if God can do that, I don't have too much trouble believing that if God wanted to, he could figure out some way to keep a guy alive in the belly of a whale. Do you see what I'm getting at here? It's either a miracle or it's not. And the other piece of this that's interesting is Jesus himself seems to believe that this happened in one way or another. He, he references Jonah in the Gospel of Matthew. He says that a sign of Jonah will be the only sign given. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly three days and three nights. So Jesus seems to think this is possible too. And just as kind of a matter of course, you need to know this about me, when the guy who predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off says something, I tend to just go with what he says. Do you see that? So there's a little bit of a case for around that, but if, if you have questions, you don't need to pretend. Regardless of what you think about this story, I don't want you to miss the point. God is up to something great in this story, and it's for us to hear that message today. Well, let's get back to Jonah. When Jonah starts out, things uh, are not looking so bad. He's on the boat. He's running away. He's headed west. The picture you kind of get, right? He's got, I don't have this, but he, he's got long flowy hair and he's on the deck of the boat and the wind's blowing through his hair. He's heading west to Spain or wherever Tarshish is. And he's, he things are going just fine. It's the picture of ultimate freedom. But at this point, something happens. You'll remember the word of the Lord comes to him. Jonah decided to run. And what he discovers on that boat is what many of us have discovered when we tried to run from God which is this, that you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. Jonah went down to Tarshish, down into the boat, down into the water, and now down to the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a fish. Jonah has literally hit rock bottom. That was pretty good, Andrew. Thanks for chiming in with me there. And the question that Jonah has to answer when he hits rock bottom, it's actually the same question that we all have to hit. Uh, answer when we hit rock bottom. That is this. What do you do when you find yourself in the belly of a great beast at the bottom of the ocean? What do you do? 
What do you do when you find yourself in the belly of a great beast at the bottom of the ocean? Because here's the truth, my friend. You and I, all of us, will end up in the belly of a beast at the bottom of the ocean at some point in our lives. Maybe because of our own choices and bad decisions. Or maybe because of the choices and decisions of others close to us. The simple reality is that we will all end up there at one point. And that's what chapter 2 is all about. Chapter 2 is Jonah's response, his prayer from the belly, from inside of the fish. And it's some of the most beautiful and profound Hebrew poetry in all of the Bible. Look at how it begins. It begins this way in verse 2. This is the beginning of his prayer. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. Now, this word distress is kind of our first clue as to what's going on here. Uh, In Hebrew, this word actually describes the troubles or pains of childbirth, the trouble or pains of labor, which, man, we kind of know what that feels like, right? Do you see the humor here? Jonah, who, by the way, has never given birth, right? That's just for the record. He's saying, in my childbearing pains... But I ask you, who in this picture is actually pregnant? It's the fish, isn't it? Do you see? Jonah is about to be born again. Now, this word distress is is, is a picture of what God is going to do in the womb of this fish. Namely, there are some things that he wants to birth in Jonah. I want to highlight three things that are born out of our darkest moments. Three things that we can only learn from the belly of the whale. And as we go through these, I want you to be listening. Where do you hear yourself? Where do you see yourself in Jonah's story today? Three things that are born out of our darkest moments. We ready? Here we go. Thing number one, this is for the note takers. Number one, first thing born out of our darkest moments is this. It is in our darkest moments that prayer is born. In our darkest moments, the prayer is born. Right at the beginning of his prayer, Jonah says something that human beings have been saying ever since for the last 2,700 years. He says this, In my distress, I called to the Lord. There's something about distress in our lives that gives birth to prayer. I mean, just think about your own life. Isn't this true for you? That the first time you prayed, or, or maybe the first time in a long time that you prayed, was in a moment of distress. And maybe it wasn't from the belly of a fish. Maybe it was from inside a doctor's office or the back of a police car or maybe in a tiny room holding a little stick that had a plus sign on it when you were expecting a minus. Or maybe you found yourself alone inside an attorney's office and no matter what you did or what someone else did to put you there, in the middle of that moment, in the middle of that distress, what did you do? You called out to the Lord. Prayer is birthed in distress. One of the most profound Jonah moments from my life actually comes from uh, just about five years ago, five and a half years ago, right before we moved here to North Carolina. Uh, My wife and I, our whole family, we were living in Los Angeles, and uh, my wife had become quite ill with pneumonia. And we were, uh, you know, she was taking all the right antibiotics. She was seeing the doctors, but she just kept getting worse. Eventually, we went to the ER, and they admitted her. And it turns out she had a rare infection, a rare bacteria that they could not identify. 
Uh, and the infection had moved into the whole of her body, into the whole of her chest cavity. She uh, was admitted for three weeks in the hospital fighting. She actually became the teaching case for the hospital. So all the doctors came to see her. And, you know, I just have to say, as a 38-year-old, was I 37, 38 at the time? 37. As a 37-year-old, I did not expect to be having end-of-life conversations with my wife, right? That's one of the darkest moments I'd ever faced. Truthfully, it was the most scared I had ever been. But I remember this moment. I remember on the seventh floor of Kaiser Hospital on Sunset Boulevard in East Hollywood, looking out the window and just coming to the end of myself. When I prayed the only prayer I could, I said, God, help. I have nowhere else to turn. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? It was prayer birthed out of distress. The author Anne Lamott says that there are only three kinds of prayers in this world. They are help, thanks, and wow. But she says that help is almost always our first prayer. And I think she's right because prayer is born out of this feeling, this experience of being powerless. In fact, I was reflecting this week on why it is that we often have a hard time praying. And, and at least, I think that at least sometimes it's that we don't really think we need to pray. All right, I'm, I'm a pretty competent guy. I, I think I can solve most of my own problems, except car engine problems. I can't solve any of those. But I can solve most of the problems in my life. So it, since I'm a competent, self-sufficient kind of guy, why should I pray? I don't really need to. Or maybe it's, it's not that you don't think uh, you need to. Maybe you actually think prayer doesn't change anything. We don't pray because we don't think it makes a difference. That things are just the way they are and nothing's going to change. Or maybe, maybe this is why you don't pray. Maybe you think, man, I got myself into this situation. Why would God help me now? Why would he even listen? This is my own doing. And this is why I think the second half of this sentence that opens Jonah's prayer is so profound. Look with me again at what he says. He says, in my distress, I called on the Lord. And this is so cool. Don't miss it. This is so amazing. He answered me. I called on God and he answered me. And then just to make sure we don't miss what he's saying here, he repeats the whole thing a second time. Look, from, the, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you, Lord, listen to my cry. Do you see how life-changing this is? Jonah is proof that God listens to the desperate cry for help, even when the situation, even when it's a situation of our own doing, even when we're the ones who got ourselves into this mess. You see, one of the reasons I think you wait, one of the reasons I wait, one of the reasons we hesitate to call out is because we think, look, I've just done some stuff. I haven't really been on the right track. And Jonah says, it's okay. Let me tell you something about your heavenly father. He responds to the desperate cries of desperate people in desperate circumstances, not because they deserve it, but because he is generous. I called out to you and you heard my cry. What grace. The psalmist describes it this way. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there and listen to these words with Jonah in mind. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
How far do you have to sink to be out of God's reach? It's not possible. Even in the depths, you are there. Psalm 23 says this, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for what you are with me. We simply cannot escape the mercy and reach and ears of our God. First thing born in our darkest moments, prayer. Prayer is born in our darkest moments. He is listening. Second thing is this. It is in our darkest moments that faith is born. That faith is born. What do I mean? Well, look with me at verse 3. He continues here. Joe says, You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Now, question here. This is super interesting. Who is the you that Jonah is speaking to? Well, it's Yahweh. It's the Lord, right? You read chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, who was it that chapter 1 said threw Jonah over the edge of the boat? Well, it was the sailors. But now, when Jonah retells the story, it has changed. He says, it wasn't the sailors who threw me over. Lord, it was you. Somehow being in the belly of the fish has given Jonah a new kind of clarity, a new kind of insight. And maybe this is why it took three days in the belly for him to finally get there. God is trying to help Jonah see how his hand has been at work even in the midst of the most difficult moments. Now, I want to be very careful here because I want to say what I'm not saying first. What I'm not saying is that God caused evil to happen to Jonah. That is not what I'm saying. And this requires some maturity of mind and faith to understand. But this is very hard for some of us. But some of us are, need to see this again today. It is not God's fault that Jonah made stupid decisions. Whose decision was it to get on a boat and run from God? Jonah's, right? That's Jonah's decision. Let's say you end up in the belly of the beast because of someone else's sin. Someone else's running. Is that God's fault? No. Take uh, the story of Joseph, for example. Do you all remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph, uh, he, you know, he, he didn't really do anything. I mean, he was a kind of a little cocky younger brother who was boasting to his brothers about being dad's favorite. That's what he did wrong. But his brothers decided to sell him into slavery as a result of that. Was that God's fault? No, that's Joseph's and the brothers. Do you see what I'm getting at? See, what Jonah comes to see is that God will walk with you through seasons of hardship, but he will use those hardships for good. He will, to use a Bible word, redeem them, buy them back, make them count. Jonah wakes up to the fact that God is giving him, what God is giving him here is what one author calls a severe mercy. God is not at fault, but God is present with him. He is not, he is not simply going to be Jonah's little genie in the bottle, assuring him a safe journey to wherever he wants to go. Now let me continue with this thought for just a minute, if you're a track with me, uh, because I think a lot of us have this as our kind of default thinking, Right? That we invite God into our lives, we tuck him in our back pocket, and he ensures us a smooth passage to our chosen destination. Hopefully with a little bit of comfort and some extra sushi on board as we go. But if you think that God's greatest priority is to make you comfortable and happy as possible, my friends, you might be following a God that's not of the Bible. 
The picture that we get of God in the scriptures is this. God's highest priority is to call people to himself, to mold and to shape their character so they come to understand the truth of who they are as creatures made in the image of God and that they come to discover the truth that they are not God. And that we actually end up making really poor captains of our own ships because we conveniently, at least I do, tend to make my ships sail to whatever is best for me even at the expense of others. But God will deal with us in ways that he brings us to the end of ourselves, to the end of our ropes, and he brings us to this place of dependence and trust and humility where faith is born. Jonah wakes up to the fact that everything in his story has been used by God as part of his rescue plan, part of his redemption. And what Jonah can now see is that God has been faithfully pursuing him, not to pay him back or punish him, but to bring him back to win him back. And that's what's so powerful about this fish. What at first looks like a vehicle of death actually becomes a rescue submarine. Why does God send the fish? Because he is in the saving business. He is in the redeeming business. Which brings us to our third and fi- oh, I've got a quote from John Ortberg. I almost skipped. I love these words. Listen to how John describes this. He says, redeeming is what God is into. He is the finder of directionally challenged sheep, the searcher of missing coins, the embracer of foolish prodigal children. His favorite department is lost and found. If there is one way that human beings consistently underestimate God's love, it is perhaps in his long- loving longing to forgive. Second thing is born in our darkest moments, is faith. Which brings us to our third and final one. And that is this. It is in our darkest moments that hope is born. Hope. I just love how this chapter ends. Look with me again at the verses here. Look at what Jonah writes. He says, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you. Lord, and my prayers rose to you, to your holy temple, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Now pause here before we get to the vomit moment. Pause right here. Has Jonah been vomited up on the beach yet? Has the fish lost its lunch, tossed his cookies? ridden the regurgitron? No, he's still swimming in a shrimp cocktail and tuna tartar. This is where Jonah, he's still in, I'm, this is, I'm doing the best I can there. Is it helping? <laughs> where is he? He's still in the belly. Has he been delivered yet? No, but hope is being born. My Shakespeare professor in college used to say that there are only two kinds of stories in this world. There are tragedies and there are comedies. Tragedies are where joy loses, life loses, hope loses. Comedies are where joy wins, life wins, and hope wins. What kind of story do you suppose Jonah is? Well, it's a comedy, isn't it? Just when we think the story is over, just when we think it is as bad as it could possibly get, suddenly hope is born. You see, in Israel's eyes, Jonah's predicament was as bad as it could get. 
But it turns out that when human beings are going down, God is up to something great. From God's perspective, death and the grave and Sheol are not problems at all. Stiff-necked, rebellious, stubborn humans are not a problem. God laughs at it all. This is why Jonah ends up getting vomited onto the shore. It's a way of saying this is a comedy. Hope wins. The book of Jonah is a book of hope. It's comical in the most sublime, transcendent, wonderful sense of that word possible. And part of the reason why I think Jonah is such a joy to read is because there's another character between every line in this book. Jonah, we are told, is from a town called Gath-Hefer, which is a few miles away from Nazareth. Does anyone remember another prophet who came from the town of Nazareth? Jonah's name means the dove. We learned that the first week. A name that also means given to a beloved one. Does anyone else remember a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son? Anyone else who came up out of water where a dove descended upon him? Anyone remember? Toward the end of his life, Jesus said he had one sign to give this tragic world. He called it the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, Jesus said, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here comes that third day again, doesn't it? See, the message of Jonah is a little foretaste of the victory of Jesus who comes to meet us at the lowest, darkest places in our lives, telling us that death loses, sin loses, sorrow loses, sadness loses, and hope wins. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? God gets the last laugh. That's the story of Jonah. It's the story of the church And it can be your story too. Consider this. Because of the persecution, the early church in Rome met for worship in a place called the catacombs. Have you heard of this? The catacombs were tombs, literally underground burial places. And you thought meeting in a school gym was an awkward place to do church. (laughs) But they had to do it there because of the persecution, because they feared for their very lives. They had to worship in a hidden place. You've heard the phrase, the underground church. This is where that phrase came from. In fact, the first art inspired by Jesus painted on the walls of these tombs was not uh, the art that appeared in great cathedrals. It was on the walls of these catacombs, these hidden catacombs. And do you know what Old Testament figure is painted more than any other figure? It's not Moses, the lawgiver. It's not David, the great king. It's not Abraham, the father of Israel. It's Jonah. He was everywhere on those walls. Why? Because they got the joke. They knew it was a comedy. They knew that deliverance was coming. Resurrection was coming. The third day was coming. They knew that Jesus was all over the high, holy, comical book of Jonah. And it got me thinking a lot this week about how the hope that Jonah found is our hope too. Band, you guys can come on now. What if, what if, one day when the dead in Christ shall rise... 
When disease and aging shall cease, when cancer and heart disease fall away, when HIV and dementia have done their worst, when we go all the way down into the grave and come back out the other side, what if on that day life is so good, our healing and our redemption so complete, our new body so wonderful, the community of the saints so rich, our fellowship with God so sweet that we look at one another and we say, is that all death is? I was so afraid. I thought it was going to be awful, but it's nothing at all. It's a joke. It has no power before God. It's just a door to life. That's the message of the book of Jonah. Jonah hits rock bottom, and God is there doing something even greater than before. How might God want to meet you today in the midst of your darkest moments? What might God be wanting to birth in you? Prayer? Faith? Hope? Life? We're going to respond in a time of communion. And I just want to let this be a time for you to connect with God. I've done my best to present the story today. But the power will come when you begin to see your story in the story of Jonah. And the presence of God in your life. Wanting to draw you closer to him. We know that God is present with us wherever we are as individuals. We know that he is present with us in a special way when we gather in his name. We know that he is with us in a special, special way through the sacraments. What if you let communion today be your response to God? How might you respond to this gracious God who desires to meet with you? Let's pray.